0: Good morning. It's good to be back with you all. Uh, Full disclosure, we were very hopeful to see you all the last two weeks, but two weeks ago, driving out here literally like three minutes from church, Wendell coughed several times and threw up uh, onto the back of my chair. It was just me and the boys, and I had a plastic bag and one of those tiny things of tissue papers with me. That was very exciting. So if you happen to drive by and see a shivering semi-naked child on the side of the road. (laughs) That was dealt with. Uh, And then last week, the stomach bug went through the whole family at, like, very intermittent. It was, like, very calculated. Like, every two days, like, and you, and now you. So, anyway, it's really good to be back. (laughs) As we were driving out, I was admittedly nervous that something terrible would happen, but here we are. Uh, If you have your Bibles with me, please flip to Acts chapter 16, 16. So we've, uh, if you haven't been with us as uh, I've been going through family history, the story of Acts, as an attempt to think through what does um, the early church history look like? What can we learn from the early church history, uh, looking back at family history to see who we are? Um, I had a period of time, maybe a few years when I moved up here, that I really got into Ancestry.com and kind of figuring my family story out and those kinds of things, and Part of what was interesting going through that process is, you know, you learn some cool things, you learn some bad things, and you learn some cool things about your family. You learn places where you struggle, you learn places where, man, my family has historically been really brave in this particular area. I'm an inheritor of that. And the goal is, as we go through Acts, we see what we inherit, uh, who our family is in Christ, and what they teach us. So what we're about to read is I've split it up. We're going to do it slowly. We have three stories. We've just come from Acts 15, where the Jerusalem Council came together and said, yes, Christianity is going forth to the Gentiles. It's going out, not just the Israelites, not just God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but the goodness of the gospel is going to be applied to everyone, everywhere. And many of us in this room are the recipients of that good news. So now it's really starting off, Acts 16. We are going forth to plant churches. You'll also notice that it switches to we. We go from talking about he did this, she did this, to we did this. That's because Luke is joining forces with them. It's becoming an eyewitness account as we hit Acts 16. It's all based on eyewitness accounts, but the author himself is along for the ride. So let's start by looking at Acts 16, uh, verse 11. I'm going to read a little bit of that, and then we will get... So, setting sail from Troyes, we made a direct voyage to Semithrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. The one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Let's pray together. Father, please bless us today. It is your word Father, we sit before it, soften our hearts, that we may hear the good things you have to tell us. Thank you that you love us, that you care for us. You do not leave us on our own, but you constantly speak to us to guide us closer to you. Thank you that your heart is full of love for your children. May we feel that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in 2009, there was a uh, romantic film that came out called 500 Days of Summer. Um, And the main thing I remember from it is... uh, it's the story. There's this young man named Tom. He's a hyper idealist. He works at a greeting card company, writing greeting cards, and somehow can still maintain his idealism while doing this. He falls in love with this young woman named Summer. They have a very passionate relationship that ultimately falls apart. And a good portion of the movie is spent with him being miserable and contemplating his broken upness. And at some point, though, he gets an invitation. He hasn't seen her in a long time. He gets an invitation from Summer, his ex-girlfriend, to come to a party of hers. And very excited about this. And as he goes, the film actually breaks it down and splits the screen in half. And on the left, it says, Expectations. And on the right, it says, Reality. And on the left, Expectations is just a little ahead. And you can see what happens. he's bounding up the stairs, and he knocks on the door. And she's so happy to see him and warmly greets him He offers a gift, she loves it. He steps in the room, it's an intimate party, everybody knows him. They're laughing at all his jokes. Inevitably, they are, she and him are drawn together in very intimate conversation, and by all appearances, they get back together. On the reality side of the screen, he comes up the stairs, knocks, she coolly welcomes him. He gives a gift, she gives him a nice, thanks, yeah. The party is full of people he does not know. His jokes do not land. And he ends the evening sitting by himself at a table, slowly drinking. And the final shot, of course, he looks up and realizes that Summer, his ex-girlfriend, who invited him to this party, is wearing an engagement ring uh, and that the ship has sailed. Well, uh, I think as Christians, hang with me, I think as Christians, we can have this split screen moment as well when we think about the church and the Christian experience, where we have expectations on the left and reality on the right, particularly in terms of church growth and what it looks like for Christians to engage with culture. I think on the left, particularly in America, we have a a kind of revival image, okay? And this thing certainly does happen from time to time, and I do not want to, if you have an experience similar to this, I'm not throwing shade on it. But what I want to say here today is that the scripture, as we're looking at the growth of the early church, it doesn't... The blueprint for it doesn't quite match our image sometimes of what we think explosive, spirit-led church growth would look like. I think on the left, when we think about expectations and what the gospel going forth looks like, I think we, we tend to think it's something new, it's, it's something radical, it's something extreme, and it usually has kind of three things, I would say, mass appeal, Everybody is interested in this. Everybody sees that it is good. It's culturally significant. The culture says that it's good. It has big play out on the political scene, and there are easy conversions. People are just converting everywhere. So that's our left, that's our expectations move. Mass appeal, cultural significance, and easy conversions. I think uh, when many of us imagine a successful Christianity in America, this is what we picture. But the problem is that if this is our expectation, one, I would say it doesn't actually match what the early growth of the early church looked like in Acts, for the most part, barring Pentecost. But I suspect that the reality might frighten us, might alarm us, might let us down, might burn us out. Might say like, whoa, whoa, what is this Christianity thing about anyway? Why am I not seeing this movie played out? If we look at the reality side of the film, the book of Acts... It's about like the most explosive growth in church history. This is Christianity becoming Christianity, okay? In only a few decades, it's going to expand to insane numbers. It's led by the most famous faithful missionary in the Bible, Paul. But often we don't see the church growing, even with all those things. We don't see it growing through mass appeal and cultural significance and easy growth. Instead, we see something different. On the reality side, I want to say this. Instead of mass appeal we see the church searching for true worshipers. Instead of entering culture wars and cultural engagement, we see the church engaging in spiritual warfare. And instead of expecting easy growth, we see the church lean into persecution as an opportunity. These are all countercultural things, and I hope you hang with me as I break them down. But these things all happen because... As Paul is going forth, he's looking for God-worshippers no matter who they are and no matter where they are. And he does not come in with preconceived notions about who they will look like or where he will find them. So, those are our three points for this morning, is that we're going to search for fellow-worshippers, engage in spiritual warfare, lean into heavy persecution. So, let's jump in. Let's start with our first story here. So, our, our first story is Paul and Silas get to town, and their mission is simple. They want to plan a church. They want to find the god worshipers in Philippi. And they have this baseline assumption that I've hit several times as we've been talking through this. The baseline assumption is this. The Spirit has already been at work. God has already been doing things. They're not doing anything from scratch. And they've seen this firsthand. They'll show up in the houses and uh, called by the Spirit in dramatic ways. And they're like, oh, we were waiting for somebody to explain this to us. The road is already paved for them to show up. And they know this. They know that's how God works, that the Spirit is always at work. So they don't come in and ask, how can we brand and image this in a way that will get the mass appeal? They say, what is the Spirit doing, and how can we join in? What is the Spirit doing, and how can we join in? Well, and as it turns out, the Spirit's doing a little something unexpected. Every now and then, it is true that influential and laudable people are engaged by the Spirit, but more often we find out moments like this. Paul and Silas get into town. They don't go to the most heavily populated area. They don't look for the most influential people. They hear that there is this small group meeting outside of town, praying and worshiping God, and that's where they start. A tiny, culturally irrelevant group faithfully meeting for worship. Now, at the time, if you had enough Men, by the, the code of the day, you could have a synagogue. They didn't have that. So the women don't ha- technically have a synagogue. They're meeting outside, doing it on their own, and they're praying together. They do not know Jesus, but they are seeking to worship the Father. And Paul and Silas make a line straight there. Notice this as well. They come in, and it says that we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. The point is to communicate a disposition. Disposition. They come in, they sit down, they humble themselves, by the standards of their day, humble themselves and say, we are equal in this community, we want to hear, we want to listen, we have something to communicate. And if you're paying attention and you know the story, it should it should sound like Jesus meeting with the woman at the well, uh, the Samaritan woman. If you know the story, Jesus comes to... Well, the Samaritan woman is there. There are so many cultural boundaries that would keep him from engaging with her. And he sits, listens, engages. And what's interesting is as he's speaking to this Samaritan woman, he says this. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus in that moment was seeking true worshipers. Paul and Silas are doing the same thing. The hero of this passage is a woman named Lydia. She's either a widow or single, but either way, she's the head of her household. She's a successful merchant. And this continues a theme that plays through the early church. Women play such a huge, massive role in the success of the early church. And there's a reason for that. The church in the Bible, as we go through, gives a home and dignity to single and widowed women that the culture around them does not give them. And this leads to more conversions starting with Lydia's household. This does not seem like the ideal way to start a church plant, but it is God's way to start a church. If I can give a brief aside on this, um, over the last several decades, the church has made some understandable moves that I think have had some unintentional side effects. So starting in the 60s, I think the church has looked at what is like kind of a socially chaotic world, no-fault divorce, high divorce rates, those kinds of things, And answered with like a hyper focus on creating strong families. That's good. That's cool. That's understandable. But I don't want us to lose this big idea of the church that Paul and Silas are playing out here. The church is the family of God. And that family trumps physical family. It is the true family. I know people don't like it when Jesus says this. I even heard a seminary professor say I don't like it when Jesus says this. Jesus at one point says, someone tries to catch him on a question, and they're like, well, what if, what if you know people are married and somebody dies, and then they remarry when they die and they're resurrected? What are they married to now? What are you going to do? And Jesus says, there's no marriage in the resurrection. Which I think in a culture that says like that marriage and romantic relationship is the peak of everything good, that's very hard to hear from Jesus. But as Greg Lanier puts it, marriage is designed to end. I love my children and my wife as deeply as I can love anyone, but my marriage to my wife will one day end and my authority over my children is temporary. The lasting relationship that I will have with everyone in my family is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the lasting relationship. For a little while, God help me, I get to try to help my eldest son become a good person. But one day, one day, it won't be father to son. It'll be brother to brother. Christ. This has implications for how we live as a family of God. Good marriage is great, but as uh, a podcast I was listening to recently said, it's a trailer for what's to come. Full unification with Christ. That's good stuff. And if there's a part of your heart that's like, ah, I don't know, you should actually ask yourself, how high have you elevated the romantic and marriage relationship, that's really hard to let go of, or how low have we brought that vision of unification with Christ, that marriage trumps it. So it's important as a church, I think we don't lie. Marriage can be great, and it's not the peak of human happiness and glory. Lanier goes on to say this, I really like what Greg Lanier says this. As a thought experiment, he says, if in that age, if in the future age, all the thing us crazy Christians believe in, that one day the dead will rise again, be united with Christ. If God grants us the joy of bumping into our earthly spouse, of recalling inside jokes, of giving each other a knowing glance as we worship the Lamb, we won't grieve what was lost. We'll only rejoice in what was gained. And if given the opportunity, we might say to our earthly spouse, thank you for helping me prepare for this. If we really internalized that we were brothers and sisters in Christ, I think we would live differently, with doors more open and invitations more free-flowing. As it is, I think we sometimes subtly not so subtly communicate that, yeah, here's the family of God, but this family's my real family, and it's not how we should do it. And the early church understood this very deeply, and it's why people who are lonely in a lonely culture found a home. Guess what? We are in a lonely culture. Is that not true? We are in a lonely culture. and what could be more vivid and powerful than tapping into what the early church felt and knew to be true? That we were the family of God. and God invites us not just to himself but to the family of God. Uh, the gospel at the end of the day, you don't hear what I'm not saying, I'm going to unpack it. The gospel's not for everyone and the church is not for everyone. And what I mean by this, is that the gospel is for repentant people, those who say, I am sinful before God and I need him. People who know they've fallen short of God's glory must cast themselves fully on his, their mercy. If someone is unwilling to admit their sinfulness, we will love fiercely, we will welcome fiercely, but ultimately we'll always say that there's something more, you've got you've to humble yourself. But the church is a place fully for sinful and repentant And if this is someone's disposition, this is the home for them. We seek the true worshipers. We seek the true worshipers. We don't let anything get in the way. All right. So there we have it. We have Lydia. It's the first thing Paul reached out to, Lydia. Uh, And now we keep going. So let's start back up in verse 19. So now we're gonna look at how the early church engaged in spiritual warfare. This part is trippy. I was calling a friend of mine, talking to him about preaching this passage, and he just went on. He's a he's a a pastor in South Carolina, uh, and he found this verse to be really weird and really bizarre, but let's do it. I think it's very interesting. 19, 16, sorry. As we were going to the place of prayer, so they're continually going out there, they're meeting, they're praying. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. All right. So on the surface, what this looks like is The person is demonically possessed, which in the modern world we have issues with to begin with. But that basically she just follows the apostles around, annoying them. And not out of any desire to heal, but at some point Paul's just like, Ah! Stop! And then she stops. And that seems to be the story. Well, I think there's more going on there, obviously. But I want to say a few things about it. One, systematizing kind of spiritual warfare, demonic possession, all that I think is dangerous and I'm cautious about doing it. But what I will say is this. Clearly in the New Testament world, they accepted and experienced a very spiritually vibrant world with dark and powerful forces at play. And it also seems to be true that at almost every point in Acts, when there is church expansion, there is also kind of some kind of demonic, satanic attack against them. We've already seen a few of those in Acts. At almost every point of expansion in the church, there are these dark forces against it. So what can we say for sure based on the text? Well, we can say this young woman is somehow heavily influenced by these kind of dark forces. She's under a type of spell. This possession, however, has been financially beneficial for the people who own her. They have used her suffering, they have commodified it to make money. It might also give us pause that she is wandering around saying something that seems to be true. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It is incredibly fascinating how frequently in the Gospels and in the New Testament, Satan and demonic figures say true things. They are constantly saying true things. And they find ways to say them that are damaging and terrible. Famously, Satan, in his temptation with Jesus, its just firing scripture whole time. There's something about, I suspect, I I think Paul is probably annoyed. I don't think this is like big brother to little brother kind of annoying level, you know? Like, give me my toy back. Also, you're healed of possession. I'm curious if there was some kind of moment of recognition that she was in a worse place than he anticipated. I don't know. I'm going to give Paul the benefit of the doubt and say that he cared about her and wanted good things for her, and that was the motivation for his healing of her. But a couple of things I wanna point out about this. One, it actually reminds me a little, I don't know if any of, I'm deep cut here. So in the early 1980s, there's a rock movement called post-punk, I'm a big rock music fan. And there was a famous band at the time called Joy Division. By famous, maybe famous is too strong. Some people knew about this band called Joy Division. They went on to become New Order, had some big hits. Well, Joy Division, uh, the lead singer's name was Ian Curtis, and he lived a really tragic life, and a short tragic life, and part of it was he began to have seizures on stage while he was performing, and the seizures looked so much like his dancing that people began to expect it in the shows, and uh, instead of obviously stopping to get help, he continued to allow it, like to be okay with it happening, to put himself at risk for it, up on the stage, because for him, this was the way to success. It was a kind of commodification of his suffering. This poor girl is in a similar situation, though less by her own decision, I think. She is suffering deeply, but being used for profit. So what happens is, this is her. She's successful, but doomed. She's on a track destined for death. She can't help but do the dance in front of people, because that's the only way she knows to move forward. But through the church, Christ intervenes. All right, I want to point out something else. There's a lot here. I want to talk about Paul's approach here, okay? Paul's a Roman citizen. This is going to show up in a big way later on in this passage. And we have tons of literature written by Paul. But when Paul writes, he spends no time talking about Roman culture from top down. He always goes from the bottom up. He always goes from the bottom up. This is a model laid down by Jesus, actually. Jesus doesn't come in going, man, if only I could get an audience with Pilate, then everybody would listen to me. He looks for the true worshipers of God, no matter where They are. He is gentle and lowly. This eventually leads him to interacting with powerful people, but it's not where he starts. I suspect that for most of us, the more we think about kind of big picture items, the more hopeless we feel. Uh, I don't know about you all, but uh, I was reading an article about the situation in Ukraine and Russia that was talking about how incredibly how incredibly transparent everything is, that at any moment I can kind of log in and see a new video someone has posted. And I, I don't know about you, but uh, the experience itself is, is horrific, but that ability I find very overwhelming. The kind of, just at any hour I can log online and it, there it is, there's the war that's happening, you know. Uh, and I suspect the more we think, kind of top-down big picture, not that we shouldn't, not that we shouldn't pray for those things, but if those are the dominant things that our focus is on, I suspect that it will overwhelm us because literally we cannot do very much about them. But Paul enters in, and don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm saying, please, I've been praying for Ukraine I want to do that, but I think you understand what I'm saying. That what Paul does, the spirit is at work in the world around us also. That Christians, we kind of start from the bottom up. We look at our neighbor and say, how can we help, how can we support and love? So think big picture about what Paul has done here. He's entered into Philippi and he goes, hmm, I think God wants me to start a church here. And to start this church, he starts by meeting with a group of women who would have been denigrated in their day outside of Philippi and then healing a slave girl. This is not the actions of a guy who's like, I'm here to change the culture. His ambitions are greater than changing the culture. Jesus is using him to engage with a real intense spiritual warfare going on in the hearts of people all around him. Pray for the culture, but pray for your neighbor more. Pray for the people next to you more. more. So lastly, he's, he's introduced this spiritual warfare. This is what the church is doing. They're looking for people on the fringes. They're looking for true worshipers. They are engaging in spiritual warfare. And finally, they see persecution as an opportunity. This is probably the hardest to hear, but here it is. So here's what gets interesting. By starting with the spirit, by prioritizing healing and gospel ministry, by starting on this low thing, they actually do end up getting a pretty public audience. Paul and Silas get themselves into pretty big trouble. The people who owned this poor young girl were not demonic themselves, but they were definitely cooperating with financial gain. And then this happens. If you look with me on verse 19. having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Do you think when Paul and Silas were being dragged away and brought before the big leaders, brought before a big audience, there was a part of them that was like, ooh, sweet, a big important audience, right? Now we're gonna really have our opportunity. But something else happens. The mob and the leaders unite against them, beat them, and throw them into prison. I was talking to a friend of mine they get beat so regularly in the New Testament. It's always this little, and then they beat them, and then you move on, you know? But just let's stop and think about that for a second, okay? I know that you read Lydia, and it's like several verses. We're really immersed in it. are like, oh, and they got beat. Okay, move on. These guys are getting destroyed all the time. Paul is getting beat. And I don't think this is a low-level type of experience. He is getting beat. They're getting physically hurt for doing this. And you'd have to ask, was this tactically worth it? You know, we came into town, we met this woman Lydia, we helped this slave girl, and then we got beat and thrown in prison. So, church planning a success, you know? But here's one thing that we tend to miss. Paul's ministry is not the image of entering into friendly territory with people who are all desperate to hear it. It's about finding the people desperate for the gospel in a sea of people who are not, and are maybe even antagonistic. We're going to hate them for proclaiming that Jesus is king and we have to submit to him. But here's another thing. Paul and Silas end up getting beat and sent to prison because God needs them in prison. Because God needs them to minister to the prisoners, the prison guards that are there. At this point, in Acts, they've been thrown in prison and freed so many times, they're probably just counting on it. They get thrown in jail, they're like, I know how this goes. God bails us out, and sure enough, if you want to follow along, let's finish this story. Acts 9, uh, sorry, Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in. Persecution opens new doors. There are people and places we can only access through suffering. We know that's true. If you've had any particular suffering in your life, and you've had a conversation with someone who suffered likewise, you know there's a level of conversation that you can only get by experiencing it yourself. Those of you who experienced real medical difficulty and you have conversation with someone else who's had a similar experience, you hit this deeper level. And the only way you hit that deeper level is you have gone through it as well. God knows this as intimately as anyone could. We were only accessible through the suffering of Jesus. The only way to fully redeem us was to step into our suffering, to take on our sinfulness and die for us. God does not call us to enter into this, resting on our strength, but acknowledging our weaknesses. We depend on his. I want you to notice something else. Immediately, when this jailer, clearly the spirit had been working on, when this jailer becomes a Christian, he's immediately invited into the same ministry. He heals the wounds. It's like the first act that's listed for him as a Christian. Pretty beautiful, pretty powerful stuff. You know how the story ends, like at the end of Acts 16? Paul doesn't go to the big leaders now that he's kind of shown what he's made of. He goes back to Lydia in her house. Lydia, slave girl, Gentile prison guard, church planted. And when he leaves, what do you think the message has been communicated to that small group of believers? This God comes to find us. Who are we? But he came for us. And even when the authorities and rulers stand against him, he opens the prison doors. That's the God who's come for us. I think that meant quite a bit to them. Church planted. Paul would later write an almost a direct description of what's just happened. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think the reason at the end of the day that the expectation side of church growth is so tempting to really think that that that's how it should go is because that's how we would design it if we were in charge. If I could write the script for what church growth and Christian life would be like... It'd be awesome. I would be so influential. Everything I said, people would be like, man, that guy's got it all together. People would love the church. They'd be coming in all the time. It'd be perfect, yada, yada. We would look really good. Uh, we would have great families, That just all this. But the scriptures reveal what happens when we get our way and when we're in charge. It does not end well. Christ invites us to something different. He invites us to another way, his way. He seeks the true worshipers. He engages with spiritual warfare that's happening all around us, all around you. And he endures persecution for the sake of his children. We should go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. The call to the church is high. It's overwhelming. It's easy to be distracted. Father, thank you that you were not distracted, that you were not overwhelmed, that you endured the cross for us, that you came for us. Father, everyone in this room knows someone who needs to hear your truth and your gospel, that you are king, that you are good, that you point to life. Help us to find where your spirit is working. Help us to seek true worshipers. Father, for those of us in this room who have not submitted to you as Lord, I ask that You would reveal yourself to be who you are, gentle and lowly, full of love for your people. In Jesus' name, amen.